Hey everybody, and welcome back to Scripture First, the podcast that explores how the Lutheran lectionary is working in your life. I'm your host, Mason Van Essen. This week, my friends Adam Curie and I sit down with Sarah Stinson. Sarah graduated from Luther College and the University of Minnesota Law School in 1992, where she worked as a corporate attorney for Honeywell and Kmart before becoming a stay-at-home mother of two. Sarah's been with Luther House of Study from its inception as its co-director, teaching in classrooms, congregations, and working to nurture faith and prepare pastors. In just a moment, I'll read this week's passage, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. It's the one about the lost sheep and the lost silver coin. We talk about how repentance isn't something you can actively do or even can do. The lost sheep didn't decide to be lost or do anything to help itself be found. But before I can say more, here's Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And without further ado, on to this week's conversation. Welcome to episode two, Sarah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So to start us off, uh, give us context for this this passage. Who is Jesus with and what does it mean that the sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus? So this um, section of the lectionary, Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, is part of a series of um, parables and comments Jesus is making while he's eating at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. That's the original context of all these different texts. And the Pharisees, it says early in chapter 14, are watching him carefully, which is what Pharisees tend to do. They're looking to see if he's going to make a mistake in the law. That's what they're trained to do. The text, though, the verse just before today's text is actually uh, Luke 14, verse 35. The very last sentence Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the next sentence, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the key for us now is that right on the heels of Jesus saying those who have ears to hear, 
Then the very next thing we find out, it's the tax collectors and the sinners who are hearing Jesus. It's not the, the people who are, think they're good at the law and righteous in the law. It's the people who actually are, by the way, rightfully identified as sinners. So this text is not some sort of a, um, we need, they've been marginalized unfairly, we need to pull them into the group. That's not what's happening. They are rightfully identified as sinners, but they're the ones who are listening or hearing Jesus, not the Pharisees who think they're good at the law. Is there any particular reason it segregates the tax collectors from the sinners in that first verse where it says now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming? Tax collectors were considered sinners at the time. So it's not an either still or, are. it's part of... <laughs> yeah, we still are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bad guys. <laughs> so the tax collectors and the sinners are kind of part of the same group. They were not different than the sinners. They are also sinners. So then why didn't it just say, now all the sinners? I didn't write the text. I can't answer that question. Sarah, you're supposed to have the answers. I don't know why it was written separately. I do know at the time, though, tax collectors um, in that specific context were considered sinners because they were basically making money off of the tax collection. So it may be just they had a, a different status of We've got this group of sinners, and then we've got the tax collectors. But they're all sinners, which is the key for us today. And it's those sinners, both tax collectors and general mishmashy sinners, who have ears to hear. They're the ones listening to Jesus. Mm -hmm. So diving into the parables, um, can you talk a little bit, because the Bible brings them in quite often. Can you talk a little bit more about the power of the parables and what the significance with them is? Yeah, and actually, um, we're going to look at Matthew 13, verses 10 to probably 16 or 17 or so, where Jesus actually is asked that question. Because people are listening to him tell parables, and they ask him, why are you talking like this? What is the deal with the parables? We have the same question today. So I think rather than me answering it, we're going to let Jesus answer it. And Adam, I think you have the text. Yep, I'll say it. Go. All right, Matthew, let's see, 13, 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, You will indeed listen, but never understand, and you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah, so what Jesus is doing there is actually pulling in what we now refer to as the Old Testament, what the people in Jesus' time would have known as the scriptures, and he's pulling in the prophet Isaiah there. And it's dovetailing really well with today's text, and especially the end there of 14, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because what Jesus is saying is some people are going to hear these parables, including today's 
parables, and they're going to try to turn it into a prescription. They're going to think Jesus is either telling me what to do or how to act, or I have to try to figure out where I am in this so I know what, what I have to do to be righteous. And some people are going to hear this and actually understand Jesus is depicting mm-hmm. in this parable. Mm-hmm. He's holding up the mirror is another way of thinking of it. And you're going to find yourself in that text. And you are going to find yourself, you are a sheep who hear the shepherd's voice. You have been given ears to hear when you understand this is actually Jesus electing. He's choosing. He's making his disciples. He's making you a sheep in these parables. Mm-hmm. And so he actually, the parables are frequently, um, I think, if not misunderstood, overinterpreted. Because people have the tendency to, to take each parable and treat it almost like a, like an, a poem or something. That I have to find all the symbolism and apply it to my life. That's, that is not what Jesus is doing in the parables. He's actually simply holding up the mirror and then you get to listen and, and find yourself the sheep who hears the shepherd's voice. It's electing. Jesus is choosing his sheep in these texts. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in that Matthew passage, it talked a lot about how you're not listening or you're not hearing, you're, you're not, you don't understand. Right. And, and that's s- what, what people are trying to do when they're using all the symbolism. They're trying to understand what, they're, where am I? They're trying to take control of the text. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus was saying in the Matthew, which is actually what Isaiah was saying, that when you are the one thinking you're the actor, you're the subject of all the verbs, mm-hmm. you're going to hear these parables in a way that is actually going to further your sin because you're going to think this is all about me, myself, and I. How do I make myself better? When in fact these parables are functioning to name you as sinner, even in the very attempt to not be sinner, and then forgive you for that sin, which is what Jesus actually came to do and what these parables are all driving for. Mm -hmm. It kind of, it it reminds me of, and we've talked about this before, but uh, the difference between standing over a text and actually standing under or having the, the text apply to, apply to you and having the parable uh, interpret you in a sense where yeah. you're, you're saying that the, the, common, the common issue is that when people stand over the text and try and decipher and try and, like you said, make a prescription uh, and master it rather than Christ actually uh, saying, no, this is what I'm doing to you at this moment. Yes, so when we as Lutherans talk about understanding Scripture, we mean literally we stand under Scripture. It functions on us. We do not stand over Scripture and determine what it means, how to apply it to ourselves, how to apply it to others. Um, We literally are um, subject to the function of Scripture over us. That's what we mean when we say we understand Scripture as Lutherans. Can we uh, kind of move towards the parable and specifically uh, verse 7? Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, specifically, what it means to repent, uh, and and I know just in conversations with you that my view of repentance has changed and because it was the common view that this was something that I had to do. Maybe I had to feel sorry and I had to work this sorrow into my life and then after I repented then I would have the opportunity to be saved or saved or 
uh, be justified. Can you talk about what it means, uh, what repentance means then? Yeah, and I, I think you're right to bring that up, that there um, are a lot of people who hear the word repent, and they think it's something I have to do, that I'm in control of my repenting or repentance. In fact, um, two things I want to address, the Greek first, and then just the logic of thinking you can make yourself repent. Uh, first, in the Greek, the word is metanoia, which means literally a change after being encountered by something. So even in its very definition in the Greek, you cannot make yourself be encountered by something and then change after. You are passive in being encountered by something. In this case, now it's the word of Christ. You're a sinner or someone else. You sinned against me. You are repented passively after you are encountered by that word in this case. So in the Greek, by definition, it is a passive function. But logically, if you think about it, and you said it, Adam, even in your question, um, I need to make myself feel sorry, or I need to make myself repent. Mm -hmm. If you are truly feeling an emotion, a genuine emotion, is that something you make yourself feel? If I say to you right now, Kiri, feel joy. No, she's I staring at me. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I got a blank look. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> so in the same thing, if I say, Mason, feel sorrowful. Like, what? You cannot make yourself feel an emotion. It happens organically. And in this case, when you feel sorrowful or when you feel um, that you have been repented, it's because you have been encountered by something else, which is the case in all emotion and all such things, but very much the case in repentance. It is not something we are active in doing. It is something that happens to us. Does then, that help? Well, no, it does. But that leads more questions. So why in so many churches do they say, do the pastors in those churches say, you have to go repent, or here's the gospel given for you, now repent. Mm -hmm. They're literally bringing in the gospel, but then they're using that and saying, now here's the law for yep. you to do. Why do they do that? Um, I think it's because it's human nature to want to think we have a role to play in our salvation okay. or in our relationship with God. It makes people very, very uncomfortable to hear you are completely passive when it comes to you and God. You have no role to play, no chips to play, no levers and pulleys when it comes to your relationship with God, including you can't make yourself repent. Mm -hmm. That makes people really nervous and uncomfortable mm -hmm. because we like to think we are in control of our lives. We're in control, therefore, of our relationship with God. Tell me what to do, pastor, and I'll go do it. That is not in scripture. Nowhere does the Old Testament or New, but now we're specifically talking about Jesus in the New Testament. Nowhere does Jesus make this conditional. You do this, sinner, and then I'll respond by giving you salvation. He goes around forgiving sinners who aren't looking for it, by the way. 
which is exactly what happens even in this in these parables that lost sheep and the lost coin were not seekers they weren't looking the to lot, be yeah, found the lost, lost sheep is just out there it's like, just a it's, dumb old sheep hanging yeah. out you might even not know it's lost right, right. Yeah. <laughs> probably it's, it's not, not. It's, it's not yeah it's it's the lost sheep is not away. trying to repent exactly right? it's just it's just lost and right but we like to think we have a role to play especially people who think they're good at the law people who think they've got the world by the tail and we are used to being told from the time we're toddlers you do this here's reward you do that here's the punishment and so we apply that same sense or thinking to God. Even though it's not in Scripture, we're just comfortable there. Now, the people who aren't comfortable there are exactly like today's text. It's the people who know they're caught and dead in their sin. Those are the people who are not going to be arguing about what kind of role do I have in my salvation. Tell me what to do and I'll do it because they're dead in their sin and they know they aren't good at the law. Mm-hmm. They're not They're not going to argue with what I'm saying right now and what Jesus is actually saying, more importantly, in texts like today's text. They're going to be saying, thank you, God, for being merciful, which means unfair, mm-hmm. not doing, not giving me what I deserve, but actually giving me your promise out of your mercy. Period. That's like more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, like or who is encountering that, um, than the ninety-nine righteous people who need no repentance. So what what does it mean to be a, a righteous person? Yeah. So who are the ninety-nine right people who need? Because again, a lot of times this text will be heard as kind of an us them, mm-hmm. the righteous versus the dumb lost sheep out there. So now our job as Christians, because we're in the club, right. is to go find the lost sheep out there who's outside of the club. The reality is, though, most of the time, most of us are not righteous. We are sinning. We are sinners. We need, the people sitting in those pews need to hear this promise of Christ forgives you all your sin every bit as much as the people not sitting in the pews. Mm -hmm. We are absolutely sinful, selfish, egocentric individuals, idolaters. Mm -hmm. We idolize me, myself, and I. We break the first commandment all the time. All those things, which is why we go to church every Sunday. Now, I'm not saying... Therefore, don't invite people to church and don't uh, evangelize and don't open the doors of your congregations. Absolutely not. You get this word in the ear of sinners wherever you encounter them, which, by the way, is everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. But this is not a text that's trying to segregate um, you're in the club or you're outside of the club. Mm -hmm. The one difference, though, is when you are baptized, then you do have the promise of Christ himself, that you are a sheep who hears the voice of your shepherd, that Jesus does not lie, that there is nothing you can do to undo that promise of Jesus Christ, no matter what you feel, no matter what you think, good luck outrunning the promise of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's the, what we're hearing in the text today, or Jesus, or the, the shepherd is coming for the sheep. Um, and they're coming for the coin. There's no escape. 
uh, once you you've been called. And it, this might be a, a good place to to ask or bring in the third article of the creed with the Holy Spirit. I believe that I cannot, by my own understanding or effort, believe or come to Jesus Christ, and what that means maybe for this this absolutely. text. Yeah, absolutely. So this is Martin Luther's yep, small catechism. Uh, small catechism. Yep and large catechism, if you want a little more uh, reading on it. But certainly um, what you just said, Adam, is the key, and it's where the rubber hits the road mm-hmm. um, for us as Lutherans. And that is what G- what Luther is saying there is echoing what Jesus says over and over in Scripture. And what Luther is saying in a nutshell there is, I believe that I cannot believe. I believe that I cannot believe. And, and he's saying we are not in control of mm-hmm. what we believe, of what we hear. We are entirely at the mercy of Jesus Christ. We are the lost sheep or the lost coin, mm-hmm. encountered and sought and looked for, found actually mm-hmm. by Jesus Christ in our baptism, in the hearing of the gospel, in the Lord's Supper. So how then, you, you're talking a lot about how it's not by our own understanding um, we can't do it. But then how do you explain someone who, let's say, lived in a, lived their life completely, um, just they weren't a Christian, they didn't grow up in the Christian church, anything like that, moved to a new town, and then they go, hey, I'm going to try to find a church. No one came to them and put the word in their ear. No one did that. So what... I mean, that was them going to the computer and Googling churches in Sioux Falls. Can I say the the rest of the the third article? But the Holy Spirit has called called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, uh, and and sanctified me in the one true faith. So you are having, uh, in that way, the Holy Spirit calling you through the gospel, whether it's through the internet or through a person. And you can kind of go on that, uh, Sarah, as well. But I didn't know Christ before, so how could he call me? But what Adam is saying is actually that you may think you did this entirely on your own, Mm -hmm. but other people are going to look at this and say, you know what, that was the Holy Spirit nudging you. No, I'm not going to try to take that away from someone, thinking it was up to me to go go find a church and go do that Google thing. But we can look at it as Christians and, and quite... Um, confidently say, yeah, you know what? That was the Holy Spirit nudging you and getting you into a place where you actually are going to hear that word of promise to grab you. Okay. So then you're also saying that kind of the opposite isn't really possible for someone who has been baptized in the faith. So someone who grew up in the Christian church and then by their own self decided to leave the Christian church um, but they are a baptized child of God. Can you go a little bit more into yep. that? On whether or not it's possible to effectively reject yeah. the promise. Yeah. It is not. It's not any more possible to uh, accept it, you know, to have a role in it. At it. No more possible to do that than it is to reject it. And the way we can think about this is when God makes a promise, we know he does not lie. All of scripture says this. God does not lie. And so when you have received the promise of God in your baptism, child of God, marked at the cross of Christ forever, means forever, then you may think you've turned your back on God 
walked away, rejected God, rejected Christianity. But God doesn't care what you think. He will actually come after you. Now, it may not be until you're laying dead in the grave, at which point he'll say, ha, I told you so. You're mine. Nowhere else to run. (laughs) Nowhere else to run. Exactly. Not running much at all at that point. Yeah. But the other the other times I've seen this happen actually in doing kind of pastoral counseling with people is they may have gone completely off the rails and other people are looking looking at them and there is no question sinner all over the place and they find themselves talking to a pastor or in this case talking to me and one of the first questions I ask these people, have you been baptized? Are you baptized? When they say yes, then I say, guess what? You may think you were running away from God, and you may think you abandoned God or God abandoned you, but he didn't. And he's now chasing you down right now, right here, through my words, with his word of promise. Child of God, you have the promise of God, forgiven, eternal life and salvation, peace. Finally, peace. So even when you have the urge or you send in that Google search for churches in Sioux Falls, that is the Holy Spirit working throughout your entire life of the inklings of your your parents, your family, your, your friends, your community, saying that maybe you need to find a church. And at that point, like, you you think you made that choice, but it's actually the Holy Spirit using your collective community to speak to you that would absolutely be my confession and i would hope it would be that person's confession at some point Mm -hmm. because the way a confession works is you end up looking back at your life and you're able to say oh wow look what god was doing there and look who god put in my path or put in my ear there and so you end up confessing like the psalmists that you are the one who put me in the pit and you were literally the one who dragged me out and put me in this place where I can hear the word of promise. And with that, we want to say thank you for tuning in and listening to this week's conversation about these words of promise. And a big thank you to Sarah for joining us in this conversation this week. We hope to catch you next time. This is Scripture First.